0: through their music
1: out of the box with joey watson on fbi 94.5 hello fbi radio listener yes joey watson here this is out of the box every thursday from midday to one i have the fortune of sitting down with one person and talking through the stories from their life and the records which have defined them imagine if every time you ate No matter the food type, quantity or circumstance, you had a tick in your stomach that made you vomit. Imagine this being a near-permanent part of your life. This was the experience of Fiona Wright. She was living in South Sydney, attending university and only 19, when a malicious version of anorexia struck, one that would define her life to today. She is now an essayist and a poet. Reflecting on her experiences, her book of essays, Small Acts of Disappearance, won the 2016 Queensland Literary Award for Nonfiction, and her poetry collection, Knuckled, won the 2012 Dame Mary Gilmore Award. And today, Fiona... A warm welcome to Out of the Box.
2: Hello, thanks for having me.
1: No worries at all. Now, Fiona, we're not only joined by you in the studio, we're That's right. also uh, joined by uh, Virginia. Virginia Wolf. Virginia Wolf. <laughs> Can you introduce her to, to me and the listener?
2: Yeah, Virginia Wolf is my assistant's dog. So we've been working together for about a year now, and she sits her final test tomorrow, which is very exciting. Um, and I. Sort of got paired up in an assistance dog program um, after my last hospitalization, and she's made a huge difference You've written to ab- my life. You've written
1: about uh, this idea of having an assistance dog making your otherwise invisible disability mm. visible. What does that mean?
2: I have noticed recently when I've been taking, because she comes with me everywhere um, and you know into public spaces, she has the same access rights as a guide dog, um, but. You know, it means when you're walking around with a visible disability aid, suddenly people can see that there's something different about you in a way that they couldn't normally before when I was kind of moving through the world. Um, and it's been very interesting to me to see how people react and the questions they ask um, and how intrusive that can be, really. It's a, it's a strange phenomenon.
1: Is it a relief
2: in some way? Uh, it gets annoying. <laughs> I mean, I'm quite happy to explain what she is and, and what she does, but, you know, it's complete strangers coming up and basically asking me for my medical history um, and and what might go wrong for me in the next little while. Um, I, I just think people don't consider what they're saying before they do so.
1: Fiona, let's go now to the suburb of Menai where you grew up. Can, yeah. can you take me there? Paint a picture of Menai.
2: Menai is exactly halfway between Bankstown and Cronulla. Um uh, it's in the southwest of Sydney, uh, and it's a it's a beautiful physically very beautiful place. Um, lots of bushland, kind of big curving streets, um, you know. And we had a big backyard and all all of that sort of very idyllic kind of spot in a way. But I never felt very at home there growing up. Um, it's it's small and it's quite isolated. It's not on a train line. Um, or a bus route, for that matter. <laughs> so you know, it takes an hour and a half to get into the city by public transport. Um, was
1: it just the distance that stopped you from feeling at home? It
2: was the distance, and I think also, um, you know, it's it's a, it's a very safe liberal seat. Um, it's not far from Scott Morrison's seat, as it were, um, and kind of it. I I don't know how true this is in hindsight, because you know the the way you see the world as a kid and as an adolescent. Isn't necessarily um, real, let's shall we say, um, and is full of a lot of angst and self righteousness that that all teenagers have, I guess. But I felt like it wasn't a place that was very tolerant of difference, and I've always felt very different.
1: In what ways?
2: Oh, um, you know, I've always thought a little bit left of centre, um, been a bit kooky, um, eccentric. I think was the word that was that was used a lot. And of course, I was a bookish kid, a smart kid. Um, and, you know, Australian culture as a, you know, as a whole, um, doesn't like smart kids very much, I think. Um, and, and a very kind of sporty area too. And that was never something that I was that into. I'd much rather be sitting on a couch, reading a book than kicking a ball around.
1: Tell me about the house that you grew up in. The
2: house I grew up in was, um, at the bottom of a cul-de-sac, um, which is kind of great in a way. It was a very steep road. So, um great fun for bikes, um, just a, a very ordinary, beautiful, beautiful house. Uh, every time I go back there, I'm struck by how comfortable it is, because my parents built it in 1980, um, just after the birth of my brother, their first child. Uh, so it was a new build in a new suburb, um, and they got to make it, I guess, exactly how they wanted it. And I'm someone who has been living in share houses ever since I moved out of home. Uh, And that experience of being able to make a space your own, I think, is something that's quite um, that's not very common for our generation Uh, to kind of, you know, where you're not even allowed to put blue tack on a wall. Um, The idea of repainting or knocking a wall down or tearing up the floor and putting something new in uh, kind of blows my mind. Really, <laughs> tell me
1: about the the bushfire that blazed around your property when you were fifteen.
2: Yeah, it's, it, Menai is in the in, in the bushfire belt, um, and we've always always had fires. But the biggest one was when I was when I was about fifteen, and I was at school at the time, um, and got picked up from the train station by my parents, which was kind of an unusual occurrence. Um I'm very excited by that until they let us know that <laughs> the house had been evacuated and we were going to my nan and pop's place, um, which was strange because we'd seen the smoke over the city, you know, while we, were, while we were still at school and that strange kind of glowing orange light that you see with those bushfires. Um, it was terrifying uh, in a way. We, you know, we went, to, we went to our nan and pop's place and definitely saw... Um, We were convinced we saw our back fence being kicked down by firemen on the TV. Um, You know, and and the house was fine when we came back, but the the backyard had been burnt and the swimming pool melted and, you know, the the shed with all of the lawnmowers and things like that had exploded.
1: Was there a moment when you thought that your house might not be okay?
2: Yeah, when, when when we saw that fence being kicked in, we were pretty certain that we'd be coming back to nothing. And also the dog had run away. So that was terrifying. <laughs> you know, I've got my priorities here.
1: What had happened to the dog? Uh,
2: she, we, we don't know. Um, but when we got home, she was sitting on top of the driveway, cool as can be, just waiting for us to come back. <laughs> so the dog,
1: the house and the family had managed to survive. Yeah,
2: yeah everything was fine. Um, but it was disruptive and scary. And I think, you know, there's every time there's a fire in Sydney, I still have this visceral... Reaction to that light, that you still get this kind of worry in it, and I think it was last year um, there was another fire that kind of swept through the area, and I, you know, I was at home in Newtown. And I was like, nah, I've just got to go, got to go to my mum and dad's place. I've got to be there. You know, sort of couldn't stay away.
1: Wow. <laughs> yeah. Fiona, in tribute to your teenage years, what mm, can we mm, mm. play up the top of the program? Uh,
2: um, the song we're going to play from my teenage years, it's, it doesn't date from my teenage years, but it was important to me at that time, is Tori Amos's Cornflake Girl.
3: It was a good solution, hanging with the raisin girls. She's gone to the other side, giving us a yo-yo. Things are getting kind of gross, and I go to sleepy time. This is not right. Really, this, oh, this, oh, this is not really happening. You bet your
4: life. It ends. You bet your life It ends oh, honey, you bet your life It's a Peel out the watch we just Peel out the watch where
3: She knows What's going on Seems we got it cheaper With my hands, I could be there. There
0: must have been a nice price,
3: she's putting on a This is not.
1: Amos there and Cornflake Girl taking us back to the childhood of writer and poet Fiona Wright. This program on your FBI radio is out of the box. Fiona, what happened to your body when you were 19 years of age?
2: Yeah, well, when I was 19 and just at the end of my first year at university, um, I developed a very, very, Very rare stomach condition called um, rumination syndrome. Um, Nobody knows why it happens. Generally, happens to people at at about that age, and it happens more to women than it does to men. Uh, And it's it's a tick in the top of uh, the the muscles that kind of hold the stomach closed. Um, That you know just means if if I eat too much or eat the wrong thing or um, or if I'm just a little bit stressed when I'm eating, um, it makes me vomit.
1: how did that start to manifest to you in the very early
2: stages? In the very early stages, I was just, I'd been going about my life um, completely normally and then I would, you know, have lunch and throw up. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I laugh. Um, but it was it was terribly confusing. You know, I had no idea what was happening because um, it, it really did come from nowhere. Um, and, I, you know, went to the doctor and the doctor hadn't seen it before and I got, went to specialists and did round after round of all these tests that were coming back negative, you know, they weren't finding any of the better known and more serious conditions, which was great. You know, you meet each kind of, you don't have this horrible thing with a great sense of, sense of relief, but also kind of disappointment that you still don't know what's going on. Um, and it, it took about 18 months to find a diagnosis and, um, and 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 when i did the specialist said um well the first thing he said was you're not crazy and you're not doing this on purpose which was a brilliant thing to hear because everybody else was pretty much treating me like i was doing it on purpose um or asking me if i was pregnant which was also hilarious
1: what so they were thinking that it was related to anorexia for example uh
2: yeah that it was a a purging behavior right um but it was completely out of my volition um And, you know, I didn't have and and I've never had any of the kind of body dysmorphia that is usually a part of of an eating disorder, usually a huge part of an eating disorder. Um, So, yeah, he said that. And he also said, I've seen 10 cases of this in, you know, in my practising career um, and we don't know what to do about it. Uh, He also advised me that the best thing to do was to learn how to manage it um, by cutting out of my diet the things that I thought were triggering the vomiting. And it just turns out I was really, really good at that, um, and I, I, you, I, I say that glibly, but um, you know, it, it's it's not a straight black and white matter. Some things can be fine one day and not fine the next. So, you know, it did lead to a lot of anxiety around eating. Um, I know now too that there are changes that happen in the way your brain works when you're malnourished that kind of make you hyper hyper vigilant and hyper focused around food. But also, I think if you're vomiting. You know, whenever you try to eat, good luck having a healthy relationship with food. <laughs> mm, mm. Um, so at some point it did slip into disordered eating. I, I don't know when that was and I, I never will know, I think.
1: But in some ways the biology of what was happening in your stomach was the precondition for then what was yeah, going on in your yeah. mind. Yeah.
2: I mean, I also had all of the personality traits that make someone vulnerable to disordered eating. And there's a lot of evidence that we know now that um, there's a genetic link. As well um, in these kinds of illnesses
1: what personality traits
2: are there? perfectionism um, <laughs> being someone who is high achieving and hard-working um, and very goal-oriented um, having a kind of being very vulnerable to criticism um, so a, a thin skin was what I used to get told all the time growing up um, being sensitive very concerned about the feelings of others and the impressions of others, really trying to like, um, be nice and good and acceptable to the people around you and a, and a really poor sense of self actually, um, is, is kind of key as well.
1: So uh, I'm just trying to work this out. Mm -mm -mm. The biology of what was happening in, Mm -mm -mm. in your body was being triggered by something that was in your mind?
2: No, no, nobody knows why rumination disorder starts. Um what I'm saying is more I you know, for me, that was the thing that kicked off the eating disorder. right. But right. you know knowing that I had the predisposition anyway, um it may very well have been if I didn't develop that stomach condition, something else would have kicked it off. Um, you know I, you just you just don't know these things, I think.
1: Wow, <laughs> <laughs> what can we uh, what what can we play now as we get further into your journey with this disorder?
2: Uh, the song I'm going to play now is Laney Lane's "Ain't Hungry." Ain't Hungry. And I'm doing this very um, with my tongue very firmly in my cheek. And the reason I chose this song is that when I had my first hospital admission, which was a day program, uh, it was on the other side of of the suburb. Um, I, I live in Newtown. It was in Glebe. Um, and the first day I was walking there, as nervous and terrified as you'd expect from someone who's about to step inside a, a psych ward for the first time in their entire life, um, I was listening to music as I was as I was walking there and Amy Winehouse's rehab came in, you know, trying to make me go to rehab. I say, no, no, no. And I was like, uh-uh, oh, no, we are not listening to that today. Skipped it and... Um, Uh, Yeah, Ain't Hungry came on instead, and I was like, okay. (laughs) Thanks, universe. That's really kind.
5: our room, just sit here, sip inside He said, "Don't oh, you look pretty sitting in no the tie?" But ain't that the way it's supposed to be? If we were die in a jungle, nothing strange to see. Back in our room, still sitting, sip inside. Breakfast.
1: Laney Lane, there with that visceral track "Ain't Hungry," brought into FBI Radio today by writer and poet Fiona Wright. We are talking about her struggles with rumination disorder. Uh, Fiona, you mentioned that that track was playing just hours before your hospital, uh, your first hospital mm. admission in your life. Can can you take me now to St. George Hospital that afternoon?
2: Uh, that one was um, RPA, This is actually. RPA, so we're yep. closer to the city. Yeah, closer to the city. Um, although I did go to St. George one day when I was very, very dehydrated because I'd been throwing up all day. Um, and that was fun because I got put in the aged care ward because there weren't enough beds. <laughs> <laughs>
1: let's get to that in a, in a moment. Yeah. So let's go to the, yep. the RPA but
2: now. At, at RPA... Um, they have an eating disorders outpatient unit, an inpatient unit, and a day program. Um, and when I first tried to get treatment, uh, it was for anxiety. So I was I was incredibly anxious, um, so anxious that I'd been I'd had a few episodes where I'd I'd had panic attacks. On, in hindsight, uh, I know they were panic attacks. But I, you know, the first time you have a panic attack, you think you're dying, because um, you know you can't breathe properly. Um, So I thought I'd get help for anxiety and and went to a psychologist and she must have known what was going on straight away because of the way I looked. I was terribly underweight Um, and, you know, so anxious I couldn't sit still. Um, But she was very gentle with me and over the course of months kind of convinced me to try the outpatient clinic without saying the word, without saying I think you might have an eating disorder because I think she knew if she'd said that I would have and never come back. Um, But she kind of said, these guys know how to put underweight bodies back together. Um, So I went to the outpatient clinic and I was there for ages, not really getting anywhere, um, until one of the doctors sort of convinced me to try their day program. Um, So it was four days a week and you'd rock up just before morning tea and leave kind of half an hour afternoon tea and have supervised meals. Um, But also group therapy, which I'd never been a part of before. So it was the first time in my life that I met people with eating disorders, um, all, all different kinds and all different sorts of, all different sorts of people, um, which was a surprise to me. And in the first couple of days, sitting with them, listening to them talk about their lives, their illnesses, their thought patterns, um, it suddenly struck me that I, everything they were saying could very well have been coming out of my own mouth. And there was clearly something else going on. Then I thought I'd been adamant that the way I was eating was nothing more or less than trying to manage the rumination. Same way a celiac doesn't go out and have a bowl of pasta or a diabetic, you know, isn't going to drink Coke. Um, You know, I thought that's all I was doing. And then listening to these people thought I I kind of had this moment was like, oh, shit okay, <laughs> you can't pretend this isn't what's happening anymore. Um, you know, and it was it was very hard and a, and a really difficult program and I don't think I was well-suited to it in hindsight. In what ways was it difficult? What would they ask you to do? Eat. <laughs> um, eat very large. They weren't very large meals. They were large-ish meals, but they looked enormous to me um, because I'd been eating such small meals and, and from such a limited... Um, repertoire of food so it was varieties of food that I wasn't used to eating and didn't think I could eat and volumes that I didn't think I could eat and of course it very often did trigger the vomiting um, which was embarrassing and uncomfortable and I was shamed for it in that particular program Um, they definitely made me feel that it was my fault and that I was doing it on purpose Um, or that I hadn't been you know trying hard enough not to vomit Um, but you know I. so in hindsight I don't know that it was the right program for me but I didn't know that at the time you don't know how to navigate the system until you've navigated the system Um, but I also think without that program I never would have been able to accept that something much bigger had been going on
1: but by this stage you're coming to terms with the fact that you are battling some sort of anorexia Mm -mm -mm. but you're still not dysmorphic
2: I never I never got dysmorphia, which I'm so grateful for because I've seen how badly that messes people up. Did that clearly
1: um, kind of differentiate you from it the other did. people? There? It did,
2: yeah. Um that very much so and the, the the vomiting too. I mean, you know, they have in one thing that all eating disorder hospitals do is lock the bathroom doors around mealtimes, um, for obvious reasons. Uh but that made my life very difficult. <laughs> um you know, and I think the problem had been that I'd been carrying all of these false narratives about what anorexia is and who the kind of person that gets it looks like, talks like, thinks like. You know, I think the the kind of popular cultural understanding we have of anorexia is that it's something to ha- that happens to silly, spoiled, vain teenage girls who just want to be pretty. And I'm like, I was not like that. I'm not like that. Um, so I was like, well, that can't possibly be me. But one of the things I learned in that place is none of the people who actually end up with eating disorders are like that. They're all intelligent, um, emotional, caring, creative uh, people who, you know, just to, to um, think too much and care too much, really is the is the big thing.
1: So if you're spending four days of your week Mm-mm. in a day clinic at a hospital,
2: yeah.
1: Uh, do you have opportunity to live a life around that?
2: Not a lot. I mean, we had the weekends, um, and I was, you know, still freelancing around it a little bit. But um, most of most of what I was doing was tied up in that in that program for for that period. Um, which I think it has to be in a way. Like you, you really are trying to change something very fundamental to your life, and it requires a great deal of thought and effort and energy and um, and emotion—it's an incredibly emotional process.
1: What's it like walking home?
2: Uh, exhausting. I was—I was always exhausted um, and teary, and I'd, I'd sort of get home and and just collapse, and then be like, "Oh God, now I've got to cook dinner," <laughs> uh, which you know that was tricky. And I, I, um, you know, I was still seeing my friends, and I had really great housemates at the time, um, but I was yeah, I was barely holding it together.
1: Yeah, what um what what can we play now?
2: Um, the next song I've chosen is uh, Florence and Machines' "Shake It Out," and I and I chose this because, um, I remember this was played the first time I heard it. I was in a yoga class, um, in my second hospitalisation, I think. Um, and you know they they played this song at the very end in the bit where you're lying on the ground relaxing, which was something I hadn't been able to do when I first started doing yoga. I was too highly strung to lie on the floor for two minutes. i just get up and, and rack off as quickly as I could. They um, started playing this. I started bawling. Uh, <laughs> and the yoga teacher was doing that thing where they walk around the room and, you know, pat everybody's heads and squeeze their shoulders and help you relax. And I kind of heard her approach me and then just turn around and walk in the other direction again. <laughs> but, you know, at the time, the the lyrics really spoke to me about, you know, having a, a devil on your back and all of this kind of thing. But I think of it now that what she's, the, the the line is, it's hard to dance with the devil on your back. But the place I've come to now is, yeah, it's hard, but it's not impossible. Um, you know, we we live with our stuff and we keep going.
0: Regards collect like oh to relive your darkest moments, I can see no way, I can see no way, and all of the goods come out to play, and every demon wants his pound of flesh, but i like to keep some things to myself, I'd like to keep my issues drawn. It's always darkest before the dark
1: Yes, that was Florence and the Machine on FBI Radio 94.5, brought in from the record collection of essayist Fiona Wright, the song Shake It Off, the show out of the box. Fiona, tell me about the decision to move to Sri Lanka when you were 23 years old.
2: Uh, I, well, I studied I studied journalism at uni. Um, the joke I always make about this now is that You know, I I mostly did that because I knew that I was good at English and at writing but didn't really know what you could do with that and decided that journalism was going to be one of those good, solid careers that we'd always need, Um, you know, and this was just before digital media kind of became a thing Um, and, you know, it's very obviously not the case. Um, But, you know, so I graduated with this media degree and, and didn't really know what to do with it. And I decided that I was going to do an overseas internship um, and get some experience and, and come back and, and start working that way. So I yeah, I got a, a job um, working on a newspaper called The Nation um, in Colombo in, in Sri Lanka, a country that I really didn't know much about. My, my grandfather had been there um, during the Second World War and it was the only part of the war that he'd ever speak about, um, which, you know, I can imagine... Would make sense, you know. They were kind of stuck there um, for for a couple of months before the army knew where to where to send his unit. And it was it's this beautiful tropical island, and he would have been all of seventeen years old, um, having never left the country before. So of course that's the bit that he talks about, um, and it is it's an it's an incredibly beautiful place um with and and I and I loved it and I loved the people I made really great friends um but it was a really really hard place to be as well um the civil war was still going while I was there um so I I and I didn't really understand what that meant before I went there but you know you could see visible traces of the war all over the city and there were parts of the city that were just off limits to to civilians um,
1: what did that mean for you as a journalist?
2: Uh, for me as a journalist, I was I was really only covering arts events and, and which was great because it's you know, exactly what I was interested in and, and that wouldn't have been the case working on a newspaper at home. So the first thing I covered was a literary festival. Um, and I went to art galleries and um, you know, uh, launches and openings and, and things like that. but I wasn't allowed to cover anything political um, because journalists were going missing still are going missing in Sri Lanka actually um, and I was obviously very conspicuous so I, I do have this strong memory of there being a protest in the middle of the city which was a rare event you know it was kind of a very authoritarian government at the time and everyone in the office got really excited and, and started loading up their gear and, and jumping into the, the vans um, and I was like great this is going to be this is going to be excellent and, and I kind of got in a van too and, and sat down and um, my editor kind of looked at me and was like what are you doing and I was like I'm coming and he said you absolutely are not get off this bus and I was like no 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 it'll be fine it'll be fine and he was like you are a white woman you are not coming they will see you they will find you and I and I was going to argue the point and then kind of realised actually I do know nothing in this situation you are probably right um, so I got off the bus and stayed in the office and Drank a bunch of tea.
1: <laughs> it's quite an indoctrination into the world of journalism. Yeah. <laughs> Where were you living in Colombo?
2: I was living um, in a suburb called Nugegoda, um, which was very very suburban, um, near a university and and a temple. And I so I'd catch two buses into the office each way.
1: What was the commute like?
2: It, interesting. <laughs> Why is that? Um, you know, there were these very old rattly buses um, and and always very full but people kind of had this amazing ability to squeeze more people on than, than I thought was possible but um, it's very at, at the time I, I you know I haven't been there for 10 years so I don't know what it's like now but at, at, at the time it was women don't didn't have much of a presence in, in public life there so there weren't many women on the buses um, or many women that I ever saw out and about walking or working and, and certainly no women by themselves um, and no tourists because it was a war zone so I, I'd I, you know, be sitting on the bus and uh, was always getting felt up actually um, by, by the other commuters and the first couple of times it happened it was completely shocking to me because you know you just know what you expect but the thing that really surprised me was how quickly I kind of got used to it um you know because it was happening every day and it didn't seem to be anything that I could do about it and and they often made it look sort of accidental but I do remember talking to one of the women in in the office about it and saying you know does this happen to everybody or is it just me and she was like oh no 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 that's why you know that's why you know her dad drives her to work and you know I I get a I get a three-wheeler and the little um Taxis like tuk tuks, um, and then another one said, "Oh, I I just carry an extra sari pin so I can you know poke anyone <laughs> who touches me up." <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, that's good advice." But then they also taught me some choice phrases um, to to shout out, which which helped a little bit too.
1: Fiona, what, what did being in a foreign place offer you in in regards to your illness?
2: I think in in retrospect, I think I had this idea that I could leave my illness behind if I left my world behind. you know, that I could leave myself behind somehow, which obviously travel doesn't do. Um, and I think in fact you you get yourself is kind of first and foremost in front of you when you're in a when you're in a very different place because you've got no other resources. Um, and I, I struggled terribly with the food. Uh, Sri Lankan food is based on rice and curries. Um, and in that proportion to rice with curry. Um, and I can't really, still can't eat either of those things. So I was sick all of the time. Um, and, you know, and and keenly aware of the fact that I was hungry and man because it does change the way you perceive the world. It kind of sharpens. Um, and and you, you're kind of not quite, you can't quite touch the world around you, but you're sort of moving through it in that kind of way. But I was also being confronted on a daily basis with people who were living with hunger, um, you know, caused by poverty, caused by war, um, caused by racial discrimination, you know. Um, And it it was startling and strange and it it took me a really long time to figure out... (laughs) I still haven't really. Um, It's a difficult thing to come to terms with, living with this hunger that has something to do with yourself um or it's not it's not chosen and it's not willed but it certainly kind of felt that way um but you know no one no one chooses to get sick like this um but it it was startling to be living with this one kind of hunger where there was a very political hunger around me all of the time um and it's yeah a, a very confronting thing I think
1: how did hunger eventually drive you from Sri Lanka? Uh,
2: look, when I left, um, <laughs> I, I desperately wanted to stay, but I was, I was so sick and so underweight. Um, you know, I can, I, I have such a strong memory of of the flight home because you know there's not much padding on airplane seats, and I, I could feel like my shoulder blades and. And my, and my hip bone just digging into the plastic for the, the whole, you know, 20-hour flight. <laughs> it was so uncomfortable.
1: Were, um, were you, uh, beyond feeling the way that your body felt, uh, were you hyper-conscious of the, I guess, how small you had become?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I bought new clothes and, and they were kids' clothes. Um, and I, you know, again, because I didn't have that dysmorphia, I could I could clearly see... How sick I was, um, and you know, I just thought it's—I wanted to stay so badly, but it was killing me.
1: <laughs> the next track we've got some Courtney Barnett, Fiona. Wh- yeah. wh- what's the story behind <laughs> this track?
2: Well, I chose—I chose this because, um, to me, it's a song that's really about place, and it—it feels like—it feels like, um, it feels like a, a shitty share house of the kind that I've lived in um, since I left Menai. Um, a very unspectacular ordinary space that still has these these kind of interesting, kooky, um, poetic stories happening in them. And that's one of the things that I'm keenly interested in and interested in writing about how these ordinary spaces can have quite extraordinary experiences sitting just beneath the skin of them. <laughs>
1: From a track that needs no introduction to the FBI radio listener, that's Avant Gardner and Courtney Barnett, her track, it was brought into FBI radio by essayist, writer and deep reflector on her experiences of anorexia, Fiona Wright, you are listening to Out of the Box for a few moments longer. Fiona, what, what sort of relationship do you have with food today?
2: Yeah, uh, it's it's complicated, as Facebook would have it. Um, (laughs) It's it's something. One of the big things that happened to me in recent years was um, I started listening to and reading things um, from the disability community, um, mostly through Twitter, because disability Twitter is fantastic and and a great resource Um, and kind of coming across these conversations about what it means to live with a condition um, and accept a condition as something that is not curable um, and and this kind of idea that fighting against that is the thing that causes more harm than um, kind of moving through the world in a way that's encumbered. Um, Now, I'm not not saying that anorexia isn't curable, it absolutely is. Um, It's just that it doesn't go away for everyone. Um, And none of my doctors had ever mentioned this, but the the science kind of shows that. Um, And some of the things that make it harder to recover are having a physical illness, complicating it, being older rather than younger when you first get sick, being sick for many years. Um, and maintaining a low body weight for many years. So it's all the kind of experiences that I've had. And um, really, once I once I started thinking of my illness as disability and as a thing that I wasn't going to um, do away with at any time, and a thing that I just had to learn how to manage and live alongside and live around, my life suddenly got a lot easier. Um, you know and and that's what's worked for me. That's it, you know i'm I'm by no means suggesting this is what everybody should do. You know you have to find your own way through these kinds of things. but you know learning to live with this as a part of my life um, has really helped me.
1: The decision to write mm. about your experiences of anorexia, is yeah. that something that was very natural? Was that an obvious thing to do?
2: It was something I avoided doing for years and years and years you know I, I I for that whole period where I wasn't sure what was going on I, I suppose I um, didn't want to write about my illness at all because I, I thought it was um, uninteresting I guess and and also I didn't know how because it's not a thing that I can clearly pinpoint a beginning to um, the middle is very not smooth um, and you know it Recursive and contradictory and confusing, um, and achronological, uh, and there's there's no real ending either. So I I didn't I didn't know how to write about it um, until I started writing essays, which of course don't need a beginning or a middle or an end. And I really started doing that um, after that first hospitalisation because. Leaving there, I felt like all of these stories I'd been telling myself about myself for the entire duration of my adult life had been torn apart and thrown up in the air. Um, And I was waiting for the pieces to land and I didn't know where they were going to land. Um, And at least by writing about them, I had some kind of agency over that process, I think. Um, I was really just trying to understand what had happened to me.
1: Why did Iceland become... A muse for your writing in recent years.
2: Yeah, I, I wrote about Iceland recently um, after a trip there, about oh, about two years ago now, I think, um, and it was it was a big deal because I it's it was the first time um, I was thinking about I, I was I had this model of living living with my illness. It was my first time traveling with that in my mind. Um, of course, illness makes travel complicated and difficult. Um, and you know, mine certainly does. Uh, it's probably the case for a lot of a lot of people who live with these kinds of things. Um, so, so I was very scared before travelling, and um, keenly aware that these aren't the narratives that that we have around travel. That it's something that's supposed to be exciting and transformative, um, and and something that you embark on with you know courage and, um, and and I was just shit scared um (laughs) you know I I convinced and worried that I was going to come back in in pretty poor physical shape um but I still but I really love travel and one of the reasons I love doing it is because you know you see different ways of living and and different landscapes and the way that different places um shape different ways of living and, and different experiences of the world um you know, Iceland is an incredibly beautiful country, very cold, which, you know, um, any, <laughs> I always joke that I'm too skinny for winter, even in Sydney. So I, you know, I physically felt the cold um, quite terribly, even though it was summer, which means, you know, all of 10 degrees. Um, and, you know, the, the food was hard for me as well. But it was so interesting to me to be travelling around a country where people lived alongside, underneath, Volcanoes, active volcanoes, and the way they spoke about them. You know, oh, this this one's due to erupt any moment now. This one erupted last year. There used to be a town here. There used to be a village here. The the way that something so extraordinary to me was so ordinary to the people who see them every day. Um, It's something that I'm fascinated by, how we don't see our ordinary worlds really until something ruptures them. Um, And, you know, for for me that was illness, um, you know, something that kind of... Uh, you know, eating is, eating is like that. It's a thing that you don't pay any attention to um, until you suddenly have to. Um, and, and, you know, my illness changed the way I am in the world and the way I experience the world. Um, so I don't have that invisibility anymore, that, that sort of smooth experience of space. Um, you know, and, and I like the way travel makes that obvious for everyone
1: a fittingly literary (laughs) way to finish (laughs) this episode of Out of the Box today. Fiona, what can we play out today with?
2: Well, in tribute to Iceland, I've chosen some Bjork, um, which is actually Icelandic for birch. Did you know that? Isn't that fascinating? Um, Sorry, for birds? For birch, birch tree. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I know that because there's a birch-flavoured vodka called Bjork. Um, (laughs) And I, I chose this song because it's a song that I loved before I went to Iceland, Aurora. But... After seeing the landscape, the, the kind of tinkly um, quality to it, the sort of iciness of it really makes much more sense. And also because Bjork is a fabulous weirdo um, and I, I appreciate fabulous weirddom in a person.
1: <laughs> and on that note, a, a big public holiday. Thank you to my producers, <laughs> Nicole, DePalo and Brie Jones. Are you calling and them of weirdos? Of course. Oh, look, we've all got to be here for some reason. Fiona Wright, thank you so much for being my guest on out of the box today
2: thank you for having me
5: Podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com/podcasts.